Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 91. Documentary credit is a definite undertaking given by a bank to a seller on the instruction of the buyer to pay at site or at a determinable future date a stated amount of money. My name is Pesh Patel, editor at Trade Finance Global. The Uniform Customs and Practice for Documentary Credit, better known as UCP 600, helps facilitate around $1 trillion worth of trade each year. In the 15 years since UCP 600 replaced its predecessor as the international rulebook for letter of credit transactions, a lot has changed. While the ICC has also released a digital focus supplement to the UCP 600, known as the EUCP, to help address advancements in digitalization, many experts still wonder, is the UCP 600 due for an update? To discuss the UCP 600 in detail, I'm joined by Dave Maynard, founder at TradeLC Advisory and Digital Rules Advisor to the ICC Center for Digital Trade and Innovation. Dave, welcome to Trade Finance Talks. Hi, Deepesh. Good to be here. Brief introduction once again, although I'm sure you don't need a huge introduction. Who are you? Where are you from? And what do you do? I previously worked for Deutsche Bank in a number of international locations in various trade finance roles and then established my own advisory and consultancy service nearly 10 years ago now. That's gone fast. I'm also a senior technical advisor for the ICC Banking Commission and have been involved in the drafting of numerous ICC roles. And as you mentioned, I had a recent appointment as the digital rules advisor to the Centre for Digital Trade and Innovation. So just to start off with, what are documentary credits and why do international rules governing these benefit financial institutions, companies and corporates all around the world? Well, it's been argued that a a formal letter of credit has been in existence for thousands of years, dating back to Babylonian times in Mesopotamia, which is present-day Iraq. And I guess supporting this theory is the fact that Babylon was the A key centre on the Silk Road, the ancient trade route between the Mediterranean Sea and China. Then if we move forward a few thousand years to the 17th and 19th centuries, a documentary credit probably function more like a traveller's check. And we saw lots of British banks had a kind of virtual monopoly because pound sterling was accepted almost anywhere. And the London financial institutions gained a preeminence in trade finance. Then prior to World War One, uh, starting the 20th century, the use of documentary credits had become more widespread. But as is the case today, a large number of sales were made without the support of a bank undertaking. However, as a result of the of World War One, previously established trading chains were suddenly put under the spotlight, either ceased completely, or a bank undertaking in the form of a documentary credit became a prerequisite. These new trading chains were basically established out of necessity, as they had little or no available information on the trading experience of any new counterparty that they dealt with. Since then, in the 20th century, it's certainly the argument that the letter of credit gained increased usage. It went to strength throughout the century. I think we've seen less usage in the 21st century, but it's still there. It's still used regularly throughout the world. So what is it? Documentary credit is a definite undertaking given by a bank to a seller on the instruction of the buyer to pay at site or at a determinable future date a stated amount of money. And the bank undertaking is conditional upon the beneficiary, the seller, 
compliance with the terms and conditions stated in the documentary credit. And as you mentioned earlier, all credits are subject to the UCP 600, which in full is a uniform customs and practice for documentary credits revision 2007. And this was originally developed to, in order to alleviate the disparity between national laws on letter of credit practice. In essence, the UCP provides four key advantages. Harmonization, as opposed to differing customs. Common understanding of terms and intentions. It provides the ability to rely on a set of contractual rules that establish uniformity in practice. So the practitioners, the users, do not have to cope with a plethora of often conflicting national regulations. And fourthly, it also provides a platform in which to conduct business between countries with widely divergent economic and, importantly, judicial systems. I'd also like to highlight three key considerations. Uh, the first, that a documentary credit is separate from the sale of a contract on which it may be based. It's autonomous. Secondly, banks only deal with documents and not with goods, services or performances to which documents may relate. That's the intent of the buyer and seller. The banks only care about the documents. And thirdly, a documentary credit is a means to facilitate the settlement of an international trade transaction by use of a bank undertaking. Now, having said these three considerations, it's also worth saying the three things it's not. It is not a contract between a buyer and a seller. It is not a guarantee that a seller will definitely receive payment. And it's not a guarantee that the buyer will receive the goods that have been ordered. It's all about the documents themselves being checked and the compliance to the terms and conditions of the credit. Thank you for highlighting those three considerations and also what the documentary collections are not. So at a high level, what are the UCP 600 rules? And can you perhaps go through some of the main articles, Dave? Yes, certainly. And the UCP, originally introduced by the International Chamber of Commerce almost 100 years ago now, 1933, they started with UCP 82 in order to alleviate, which I've already mentioned, the disparity between national rules on documentary credit practice. Uh, there were further revisions in 1951, UCP 151, 1962 with UCP 222, 1974 with UCP 290, 1983 with UCP 400, 1993 with UCP 500, and more recently, uh, as you mentioned, 15 years ago in 2007 with UCP 600. Just to highlight quickly, it should be noted that with each revision of UCP, the previous version doesn't actually disappear. It's not absolute. They're obsolete. So subject to the agreement of the parties, you could actually make a documentary credit subject to earlier UCPs, although personally, I don't see much sense to that in most circumstances. All ICC rules, including the UCP 600, are based on the principle that they will apply if the transaction is made subject to them. That must be uh, quite clear in the first place. The UCP itself covers each step of a documentary credit process from the issuance to the advising or confirmation to examining documents for compliance or, or otherwise maybe discrepancies. And allied to this, it includes articles for definitions and interpretations and high-level requirements for the content of the main documents required for international trade. Now, bearing in mind, as I mentioned earlier, that the prime intent of UCP is to facilitate settlement of an international trade transaction, the articles that surround examination of documents are of significant importance. And in any event, the area of document examination probably carries the most risk for any bank. The bottom line is a failure to identify one or more discrepancies will often result in delayed reimbursement and additional costs, or in a worst case scenario, a loss for the entire value of the transaction. So based on this, having the requisite skills in each bank is essential to avoid such losses and any adverse impact on a bank's reputation. It's very important to note that the art of examination is not based on finding reasons for refusing to honour 
or negotiated presentation. I think a lot of uh, practitioners will um, highlight this, that unfortunately in certain times, banks seem to see documentary credits as a reason to find problems not to pay. That's not the point. The whole reason is to honour or to negotiate. Upholding the integrity of the documentary credit products and the UCP is of value to all involved in the field of international trade finance. So back to the actual examination of documents, it's based on a range of criteria, uh, the terms and conditions of the credit, the applicable rules of UCP 600, and the applicable content of ISBB 745, which is the International Standard Banking Practice for the examination of documents under documentary credits. And I can discuss that again later. And also international standard bank banking practice as may be applicable, but not documented in the ISBB 745 publication. And then perhaps that fifth one, common sense, which is often too often unfortunately ignored. There are a number of basic principles. UCP 600 states that a bank must examine a presentation of documents to determine on the basis of the documents alone, whether or not they appear on their face to constitute a complying presentation. The key words are on their face. Banks, as already mentioned, only deal with documents and are not concerned with any underlying goods, services or performances. Banks have no need to take note of any information apart from that included on the presented documentation. The concept of on the basis of the documents alone reinforces the position that the examination process is limited to the data appearing in the documents and not on a website or any other external source. The only exception is when banks are required to complete checks for the purposes of sanction regulations. And the terms compliant presentation are defined as a presentation is in accordance with the terms and conditions of the relevant credit, the applicable provisions of UCP 600 and international standard banking practice. As I've already inferred, by the way, it should be noted that whilst international standard banking practice encompasses the ICC publication ISB 745, it has a far wider application than this publication alone and refers to all banking practices for documentary credits that can be considered both international and standard. Thank you very much for those clarifications. And I think on their faces, actually a really important concept to grasp there for the banking world. So who uses the UCP 600 rules? How often are they referred to and, and how important are they? The issuing bank, often referred to as the opening bank, is the bank that issues a documentary credit at the request of an applicant or on its own behalf. A beneficiary, often referred to as the seller or the exporter, is the party in whose favour a documentary credit is issued. We have an advising bank, which is the bank that advises a documentary credit to the beneficiary at the request of the issuing bank. You can have a confirming bank, which is usually the advising bank, as its confirmation to a documentary credit, which is actually a separate and additional undertaking to that of the issuing bank upon the request or authorization of the issuing bank. This confirmation provides a beneficiary with the benefit that the confirming bank will often be its own bankers or a bank known to it. And the applicant, which is the party on whose request the documentary credit is issued. But it should be borne in mind that the applicant is not actually a party to a documentary credit in the sense that it has no influence over the payment process. It's considered there's four main types of settlement methods in international trade, although many of us actually do exist. These are the four main types, which is open accounts, documentary collection, documentary credit, and payment in advance. And from the figures I've seen, this hasn't changed much in recent years, although it is growing. It's estimated that over 80% of world trade is covered by open accounts. And documentary credits themselves probably cover something like 12 or 13%. As to importance, the remark is certainly a little out of date, 
in a land, landmark fraud judgment, Paul Bottle Mercantile v. That West, 1977. So Michael Kerr, the QC, described the documentary credit as the lifeblood of international commerce. And the fact is that the usage of a documentary credit remains wide-ranging, and it can be used for any number of purposes where goods are being shipped or services or performances are being provided. It can encompass a simple contract for the shipment of a single spare parts up to a trans-global deal worth millions, if not billions, of dollars. Commoditized goods are often settled by documentary credits, but credits can equally be issued in respect to more unusual items, such as uh, the sale, leasing, or scrapping of a vessel or an aircraft or such like. While the use of a documentary credit is not mandatory in many countries, in some there does exist a legal or central bank requirement for it to be used for all or certain types of goods that are being imported. And this ensures that the import of the underlying goods will be subject to specific terms and conditions that can mirror or comply with local requirements. Incidentally, it should be noted that uh, the issuance of a documentary credit is not exclusively confined to a bank. A corporate may, and many do, issue documentary credits. If handled correctly, the examination of documents is a valuable asset to both the buyer and the seller, as well as the banking industry as a whole. And ICC rules and opinions are often cited by courts to assist in dispute resolution, considered as a major resource for lawyers, bankers, judges, academics, and other professionals in the industry. In fact, ICC opinions have been used as evidence in court cases for many years to support the position of a defendant or a plaintiff. Thank you very much, Dave. And it really shows the importance in documentary credits in international commerce. And thanks for going through those four or five different parties and those different settlement methods. I guess just moving to today, how have these rules changed in line with the changing e-document practices that we've seen? The focus of the new rules, the EUCP, is concentrated upon the presentation of electronic records alone or in combination with uh, paper documents. It's not to the issuance of a credit because we've seen electronic credits for a long time. It's about the electronic records presentation. These rules are structured to align with UCP 600 and as such follow a logical progression. They were first published as version 1 in um, March 2002. A revised version 1.1 was released in conjunction with the implementation of UCP 600 in July 2007. And this merely provided updates in order to bring the rules in line with the changes in terminology in UCP 600. And the latest version 2.0, which in its full name is under Uniform Customs and Practice for Documentary Credits Supplement for Electronic Presentations, has been in force since the 1st of July 2019. So uh, three years now. Future versions will be released as and when they're required according to the technological developments and advances in the market. And if we look at the content of EUCP, it can be considered as meeting four distinct requirements for electronic presentation. This is articles of UCP 600 that are not present in EUCP, such as those relating to the undertakings and obligations of the banks. Articles of EUCP concerning electronic records that enhance but do not conflict with those in UCP 600 concerning paper documents. Articles of EUCP concerning electronic records that differ from those in UCP 600 concerning paper documents. And articles of EUCP that change the nature of the UCP 600 rule, whether relating to electronic records or paper documents. Now, as mentioned, the principles on which these rules are based are the underlying principles in the UCP and any standard practice currently existing for e-commerce transactions. 
As such, most of these principles are reflected in the definitions that are contained in the EUCB. The fact is that existing ICC rules such as UCP 600, whilst being invaluable in a paper world, provide limited protection when looking at electronic transactions. And the fact is it's inevitable that traditional transactions and instruments will, over time, inexorably move towards a mixed ecosystem of paper and digital, and ultimately to electronic documents and the records alone. And I think uh, in coming years, that's going to advance even more quickly. These rules provide many benefits in advancing documentary credits in a digital environment and ensuring the continued relevance of these instruments in mitigating trade risk. Now, both sets of ICCE rules, I'm talking about the EUCB, but there's also an EURC, which looks at documentary collections, were drafted on the basis of version numbers. So we had, as I said, the EUCB version 2.0, and we had the EURC version 1.0. Now, the use of version numbers, which you don't see in the traditional paper rules, allows for a more focused a shorter revision of the rules as and when advances are made or where market trends develop or expand from time to time. For all of the ICCE rules, we clearly recognise at the outset that five, 10 or 15 year periods before a revision do not fit the digital model. And the ICC must be ready to respond at short notice and deliver updated versions as necessary. As it's now three years, as I've mentioned, since these rules came into force, it's reasonable to expect new versions within the near future. Now, whilst the ICC has not at this stage made any formal announcement, I would expect a review of the rule take place next year. And uh, based on the feedback that will then be received, I'm sure a decision will then be made as to the next steps. Thanks, Dave, for explaining how those different versions work and why those updates are needed more regularly. There are additional rules which supplement the UCP 600, right? Yeah, indeed. I mean, this free, basically, they're supplemented by the Uniform Rules for Bank-to-Bank Reimbursements, known as URR 725, by the EUCB version 2.0, International Standard Banking Practice for the Examination of Documents under UCB, known as ISBP 745. Uh, very briefly, it's often the case that an issuing bank will nominate another bank, a reimbursing bank, to provide reimbursement on its behalf. And bank-to-bank reimbursements may be made subject to the ICC rules for bank-to-bank reimbursements, the URR 725. The EUCP I've already covered earlier, and with regards to the ISBP, it's important to note it doesn't amend UCP 600. Instead, it actually explains how practices articulated in the UCP 600 are to be applied by documentary credit practitioners. And if applied correctly, ISBP actually helps reduce the large percentages of documents refused for discrepancies on first presentation. The ISBP should be a continually evolving and expanding collection of practices. And the working group that uh, drafted the ISBP stressed that as most of the documentary practices derive from approved ICC opinions, the ICC needs to find a way whereby such practices can be highlighted to all banks as soon as the Banking Commission approves them. And there also needs to be a process whereby additional practices can be raised by national committees on a regular basis for discussion and subsequent approval, rather than waiting for revisions of the publication to occur. And I think I should also mention that the ICC provides official opinions, which I've mentioned earlier, where there is the need for clarification or interpretation of transactions subject to ICC rules or of the rules themselves, or when there is a dispute between the parties. Thank you very much, Dave. And I'm just double checking my math. So 15 years since the last revision, should the UCP 600 rules be revised? What a very good and personal question. <laughs> in fact, a lot of people are talking about this now. Was my maths right? What is it doing? Yeah. Now, in fact, there is actually a process around this already in motion. You'll be glad to hear. Everybody will be glad to hear. ICC national committees have been asked to provide feedback 
on their opinion with regard to the content and structure of both UCP 600 and ISBP 745, together with specifying the type of modifications, if any, that should or could be made. And the deadline of September this year has been given, and at that stage, an evaluation and analysis of the feedback will commence. In actual fact, a session on this subject was uh, included during the ICC Banking Commission meeting held in Jakarta in April 2017, which I chaired, and provided the results of a consultation with ICC national committees at that time. And feedback was received from 20 ICC national committees around the world, but only one, back five years ago, supported a full revision of UCP 600 with three requesting reviews of individual sub-articles or articles. So at that stage, the comments from ICC national committees made it clear that any existing problems didn't actually lie with the UCP 600 itself, but with their application, i.e. the practice, the international standard banking practice of the rules. And in fact, it was highlighted that 50% of the problems applied to the presented documents. And therefore, it's a justifiable assumption that a greater understanding of ISBP 745 would help alleviate these problems and greatly reduce this percentage. It was further stated as regards to the remaining 50% that it was difficult to see how a revision of UCP would make much of a material difference, as many of these causes were outside the scope of correction by the beneficiary. However, non-justification for a revision doesn't prevent other routes being taken to alleviate these problems that are being faced. So as such, the ICC Banking Commission back in 2017 recommended that more comprehensive and widely circulated guidance be made available. And one example of this is the recent introduction of technical briefings, which they have covered non-documentary conditions in documentary credits, the meaning of without delay in UCP 600, reducing discrepancy rates, and which is in draft format, formats come out in October, lost documents. Thank you very much, Dave. So just going back to earlier, the Harbertal Mercantile Limited versus National Westminster Bank in 1977. When documentary credit transactions go wrong, are the rules actually referred to? The process of examination of documents under documentary credit does often result in a difference of opinion as to whether documents comply or not. And if they are considered to be discrepancy, which discrepancies are applicable? In most circumstances, the very great majority, the discrepancies are very apparent and there is actually no disagreement between the concerned parties. So we have no problem there. Despite the fact that disputes can arise between any of the involved parties, such disputes are generally resolved fairly quickly, and documents are then taken up without referral to any arbitration or or legal process. However, on occasion, and it's unavoidable, the involvement of a third party can be required. The choice of dispute resolution often depends on the type of issue or issues in dispute. As I mentioned earlier, over the last few decades, the ICC Banking Commission has drafted and released many hundreds of official opinions in response to problems posed by parties involved in trade activities. This process provides expert interpretation. It provides analysis of frauds and transactions issued to subject ICC rules. Now, the ICC technical advisors administer these official opinions, but also answer occasional technical and educational queries on an informal basis. So a significant number of disputes have also been answered via the ICC arbitration service, and the purpose of DOCDEX is to provide parties with a specific dispute resolution procedure that leads to an independent, impartial and prompt expert decision settling disputes. And this process, just to let you know, is monitored and handled by the ICC International Centre for Expertise. 
Unfortunately, there are occasions when neither an ICC opinion nor a DOCBEX decision will solve the problem. And in such circumstances, the involved parties may turn to the courts. It's expensive, but it does happen. This can be very expensive, as I've said, and it's a very time-consuming option and can include a wide range of costs relevant to the legal process. But the point I want to mention here is it's worth bearing in mind that over the years, many courts have used the content of existing ICC opinions and DOCBEX decisions as the basis for their deliberations and conclusions. Thank you very much, David. A very high level, but also very technical overview, really highlighting the importance of the UCP 600 rules in in documentary collections. And it's really important to understand how critical these rules are to international trade, but also the fact the rules are constantly changing and adapting to be in line with the way trade is changing today. So we look forward to continuing to hear back from you and also the ICC on how these rules will continue to change. Am I right in saying people can visit the ICC website and download and purchase more information about the UCP 600 rules? and their supplementing rules as well, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I believe there is a cost when you buy a UCP 600 publication. But just to let you know, on the electronic side, EUCP and all the surrounding publications explaining how the EUCP works, I've ensured that they are free of charge. So um, very unusual for an organisation to make things available free of charge. Dave, well, look, thanks very much for joining us and speak soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com.